that's the stories that our textbooks don't. I'm Ellen. And I'm Sam. And we're just here to cause chaos. chaos. Yes, chaos. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed stealing that from you. Well, I, I was trying to do like a Rocky Horror thing, like I see you shiver with Antissa. Patient. Ah, <laughs> uh, I thought you were giving me an opening. You can only wait so long. There's only so much anticipation I can take. <laughs> so, Ellen, how's life? Ah, you know, doing pretty well. We've finally gotten to the point in sword fighting where I get to hit people. Ooh, hitting people's fun. Exactly. And I don't know why it took so long to get us to that point. You know, probably safety precautions. Darn it. <laughs> yes, which brings us ever closer to the day I buy my own sword. I am looking forward to that day. I'm still just waiting for you to show up with, like, two swords on your back. Zuko from Avatar style. Yes. Literally, that's all I want for you in life. <laughs> uh, so, I was discussing with my housemates. By the way, I live in a socialist Jewish co-op. She lives in a cult. We've talked about this before. Yeah, good times. <laughs> anyway, I was discussing... How, in our last episode, I researched the penny-farthing bicycle. And they said, huh, that is certainly interesting. And I was like, where can I find one to ride? <laughs> Did they know? No, unfortunately, my roommate who works at a bike nonprofit said he had never seen one come in. But he had seen a tandem bicycle come in. That's less exciting. I don't know. It was pretty fun describing it. Here's how the best work a tandem bicycle. You have a short but strong person in the back and a tall but weak person in the front. <laughs> However, here's how most couples go on a tandem bicycle. The man's like, oh, I'm a man and I'm going to sit in the front. And then the woman's like in the back and... Just, like, struggling to get this thing going. And if that isn't a good representation of heterosexual relationships, I don't know what is. Yeah, fair. But, long story short, I didn't find a penny-farthing bicycle. You still got time. Yeah. They did suggest the unicycle club, and I explained, again, I can't both unicycle and sword fight. But they said that's just called jousting. And I explain again that you should do both, and that you should send me pictures. <laughs> Seems like you just want pictures of me doing weird things. Yes. Have I not been explicit about that? Alright, fair. Good point. <laughs> How was your week, Sam? What'd you do? That's a good question. Time isn't real anymore. Grad school's a lot of work. And I did not realize it was October until a couple days ago. Yeah, it's been October. I know. Actually, how did you not know? We've been recording spooky episodes for the past few weeks. So, like, I'd been doing October things, but, like, the fact that October was happening hadn't, like, sunk in until... My, I have, like, a couple friends from high school who have birthdays in October, and one of them was like, my birthday's on Sunday last week. And I was like, no, it's not. And she was like, yes, it is. It's my birthday. I know what my birthday is. And I was like, is it October? And she was like, we're literally getting ready for Halloween right now. October's a state of mind. And it's one I've been in, but not 
like I've been in the spooky season state of mind without really accepting that meant October. <laughs> is what I think I figured out about myself. Well, isn't time just a social construct anyway? It is, and it's one that grad school makes it really hard to keep a grasp on. Mm-hmm. I'm still upset that daylight savings time is coming up soon. When is that? Next week? I don't know. Gross. I know. It's a terrible institution. And I still think there should be one worldwide time zone. But that's too radical for modern society. <laughs> we would all just do things at different times. Cool. So yeah, that's my controversial take. <laughs> yeah, Sam, I don't know who we're learning about this week. I do. I think it's a murderer. But I don't know. Well, Ellen... Do you, did you, like, do a lot of nursery rhymes as a child? I guess. Have you ever heard this one? Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. <laughs> ah, the Lizzie Borden murder. The Lizzie Borden murder. <laughs> because, as we learned last week, American children, or maybe just children everywhere, but, like, in our upbringing, there were some weird things we did, including this nursery rhyme. And you know that Lizzie Borden is an icon of American culture because there was an entire episode of Supernatural about her. She has been in so many, like, media things. Like, there's been so many movies and books and stuff that we're not going to list them in this episode. There's too many. I, I give up. <laughs> because this is one of those famous crimes in American history. However... Fun fact, one of my lab mates is from Jordan, and I asked him if he had ever heard of Lizzie Borden, and he had not. So I don't think this is a thing outside of the U.S. You should ask your Jordan friend what terrible serial killings were in Jordan. That way we can have some international crime. <laughs> next, next Halloween. Okay. But let's start with the life of Lizzie Borden. She was born on July 19th, 1860 in Fall River, Massachusetts which is a small textile mill town about 50 miles south of Boston. Her full name was Lizzie Andrew Borden, which I found it very interesting. Her first name was actually Lizzie, like was it Elizabeth or something? Huh. See, her, no wonder she killed her parents. <laughs> also, her real name was Andrew. Like, that's just an odd name altogether. <laughs> I think her parents wanted a boy and then just gave up when that did... They're like, well... Put Andrew in the name. Let's go. Well, her parents' names were Sarah and Andrew Borden, so I think she might have been named after her dad. Huh. Not the mom. They gave her a nickname of a first name <laughs> and a middle name from her dad. Yep. Um, and Sarah Borden died shortly after her birth. So, like, that's always a great start. Ah. Uh. But Lizzie Borden grew up as the daughter of a well-to-do businessman. Her father worked in manufacturing and real estate development, and he eventually became a bank president, so he was, like, doing pretty well for himself. She also had an elder sister named Emma, who, on, so her mother on her deathbed went to Emma and made her promise to look after baby Lizzie, which is, like, a lot of responsibility to put on, like, a ten-year-old. Yeah, that's some, like, movie-level drama. I don't know how I felt about that, not gonna lie. Emma would eventually become, like, the classic definition of a spinster. She was still living with her father at age 41, having never been married, and had seemingly devoted her entire life to her younger sister. Oh my god. Yeah, so, like... It's just sad. 
I feel kind of bad for Emma. <laughs> because she's going to get wrapped up in this whole mess. And she doesn't deserve that. No. <laughs> no one adjacent to live with Lizzie Borden is going to come out well. No. But their father really did not show off his wealth at all. They lived in a modest house on an unfashionable street in like the not-as-nice part of town. The fancy part of the town of Fall River was called The Hill. And that's where, like, all the rich white Protestants lived. However, Lizzie Borden, or the Borden family were rich white Protestants who lived in, like, an Irish immigrant neighborhood, which is going to come into play. Ah, slumming it with the Irish. There is some racism in this story. (laughs) (laughs) It is about the past. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the various kinds of, like, white racism always blow my mind, where it's, like... People care if you're, like, Irish or Italian or, like, Protestant or, like, what. Because it's, like, you're all pale. Like, at least we're past that a little bit in this world. It's like, how did they even tell? Yeah, like, how do you look at someone and, like, know that they're Irish and not, like, British? Even the British are confused sometimes. Yeah. That's why they keep going over there. Her father remarried... In 1865, which was about three years after Lizzie's mom died, to a woman named Abby DeFree Gray. And Abby DeFree Gray did not have a great relationship with her stepdaughters. Throughout their lives, they would refer to her primarily as Mrs. Borden. Everyone knew that they weren't friends, (laughs) the three of them. Also, in the community, Andrew Borden was known to be a very, like, dour man. He, like, always kind of had a frown and was, like, counting pennies and, one you know, every, like, he's a very Scrooge character. Good to know. So this is the house that she's growing up in from, like, the age of five. Has this, like, very dour man and a stepmom who she hates. And a sister with so much guilt on her. But Lizzie grew up into a very, like, socially outgoing person. She was popular. She engaged in a lot of charity work. She was very active in their family, in the church where the family went, the Congressionalist Church. And she did most of her charity work through there. She taught Sunday school. She was on, like, the board of the hospital. She was doing the thing, you know? Somehow it's always creepier when the murderers are, like, really involved in social work. (laughs) And throughout most of their lives, Emma and Lizzie were often at odds with their father over financial stuff because they wanted to live, like, a nice lifestyle. They wanted to go live on the hill and, like, do all the things that the other girls of their social class were able to do. And their father was, like, not having it. Also, the girls were convinced that Abby, their stepmom's family, was after their dad's wealth. And so they were, like, very critical of her and always, like, talking her down to their dad and being, like, her family is just trying to get your money. My God, this is so dramatic. We have the so evil dramatic. stepmom who's only there for the money. Or at least that's how it's assumed. I don't know. She was probably a nice lady. That's the picture that Lizzie at least tries to, like, believe in her youth. We have the mother who dies and on her deathbed puts the older sister in charge. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to put on your child. I can't, just I can't. And the father who doesn't support his children at all. (laughs) 
But as I think we can assume because of the like deathbed proclamation, Emma is very protective of her sister throughout their entire like young lives. So at the point when our stories really begin, both sisters are unmarried. Uh, Lizzie is 32 and Emma is 41, and the duo help manage their father's rental properties and still live with their dad and stepmom. That's kind of the scene we're setting, is this kind of family dynamic that was going into far into their adulthoods because they are in their 30s and 40s now, and they're all still living together. Oh god, that's just never-ending at that point. You'd think they would have the ability to move away I mean, you gotta remember, this is, like, the early 1890s, and they're both women, and so pretty much if they wanted to move away, I think they would have had to, like, gotten married, and I don't think either of them were really interested in that. <sighs> like, I don't think you can really leave your dad's house at this echelon of society in that time period. I mean, if they're getting enough money from this rental business. But, like, it was their dad's rental business. Uh, we do know he was pretty stingy. Yeah, so I'm sure he wasn't going to, like, pay for them to move out. Alright, so we've got this never-ending hellish family dynamic. What happens next? So, they were very aware that their father could afford to live someplace better, and they never really got off of that stick, even though they were, like, adults still living with their dad. Also, during this time, there was a lot of immigration into the town, because it was kind of booming with the whole mill industry. And so their neighborhood was becoming increasingly overrun by Catholic Irish immigrants. Oh god, anything but that. And Lizzie was really active in this white Protestant church, so she was absorbing a lot of nativist like, leanings and kind of not getting the best messaging in her brain. Oh, once again, the true enemy is racism. The true enemy is always racism. So pretty much everything changed on August 4th, 1892. What happens then? On that day, Andrew and Abby Borden were found dead in their home. <gasps> How unexpected! Andrew was found in a pool of blood in the living room, laying on the couch with his na- face nearly split open. People said he was unrecognizable. And Abby was upstairs with her head smashed to pieces in the guest room. At the time of the murder, Abby was 64 and Andrew was 69. And unlike the nursery rhyme states... Um, she was killed with a hatchet, not an axe, and she was struck 19 times, not 40. And Andrew was struck 10 times with the hatchet, not 41. Aww. Also, this is semantics, but what's the difference between a hatchet and an axe? <laughs> they're, they're just a different kind of axe. Like, we're really not, I'm not going to explain that one. Okay, cool. Different axe. <laughs> So people can come at me if they want to go over the semantics of hatchets versus axes. Okay. I think it's just a smaller, like, skinnier axe. Just so we're clear, she doesn't murder her sister, right? Because, like, now I'm invested. Her sister was out of town at the time. Oh, you think she did that on purpose? (laughs) There's theories. (laughs) Um, But first things first, we're going to go through the play-by-play of the day from Lizzie's perspective. This is the story she told the cops. At the time of the murders, Lizzie was in the barn. She went inside to find her father after, like, getting cleaned up and freaked out when she found him mutilated on the couch. At that point, she alerted the family's 26-year-old Irish maid, Bridget, a.k.a. Maggie Sullivan, to her father's dead body. Bridget at the time claimed to be resting in her third floor room after cleaning the windows all morning. 
She would have been cleaning the windows, therefore, during the time of Abby's murder. At this point, Lizzie told Maggie to run down the street and get a doctor. And when the doctor wasn't there, she told her to go get a neighbor to help. I'm just going to like point out that there was other doctors in the neighborhood, but Lizzie was very specific that she had to go get the white Protestant doctor, that she would be okay with the Irish immigrant doctor who actually lived like across the street, or the city physician who was French-Canadian, who also lived on their block. Oh, classic racism. Also, is Lizzie going to pit it on this nice maid? Will you let me tell the goddamn story? <laughs> I need to know! That's why we're doing this. Talk faster. No, I've got to build suspense. It's working. Okay, so Maggie has come back with the neighbor and they proceed to search the house to find Abby and tell her what had happened. And they find Abby Borden dead upstairs. Both bodies had been clearly victims of a brutal attack. So they called the cops at this point. And that is Lizzie's version of events. And here's what we know for sure. That morning, Andrew left for some business stuff. And while he was gone, Abby was killed in the bedroom. When he got home, Lizzie and Bridget said Abby was out and she had gone off to do something or another. She had gotten a note and it was urgent. She had to leave and that was the last either of them had seen of her. So Andrew went to take a nap while he waited for his wife to come home. And during the nap, he was killed. This was approximately an hour and a half after his wife's death, based on time of death. And we know that these murders took place at home in broad daylight on a relatively busy street. This is about one block from the city's business district. And all their neighbors and the passerbys of the day said that they didn't see anyone coming or going from the house. And no one heard any screams? No. There is also no evident motives. There is no signs of robbery or sexual assault in either body. So, at least take that. <laughs> Some police officers immediately suspected Lizzie, but she was not taken into custody at the time. And this is pretty much because of her status. She was a Sunday school teacher. She was wealthy. She went to, like, the nice church. So the police were, like, not really looking at her too seriously at the beginning. But at the time, a lot of the Irish population had started to go into the police force and they were more skeptical of her than like more people of her class in the police force. And so on the day actually of the murder, she was interrogated by an Irish Catholic cop who was like very sketched out by how she like couldn't seem to get her story straight. But no one was listening to him for a hot minute. And only a few hours after the murder, the police actually arrested a Portuguese immigrant who was innocent, and they released him shortly thereafter. But, like, that's kind of the vibe we're going with here. Oh, my God. This is almost exactly what happened with the Zodiac Killer. You realize that. <laughs> I don't, because I actually don't know the Zodiac Killer story that oh, well. Oh, they knew that the Zodiac Killer was a white man due to all the previous sketches and information about him. But due to a police miscommunication, they put out an APB for a black man. And it is very possible that the... Now they've decided that it's Gary Post walked right past the police and they didn't suspect him. That's fun. I thought it was Ted Cruz. (laughs) Could still be. But yes, back to this murder that we're talking about that's like 
what's happening. (laughs) At the time of the death, as I said, Emma was out of town, so she was never a suspect in the murders. And there ended up being about a week between the murders and Lizzie's first arrest. And so during that time, a friend of Lizzie's saw her burning a dress. She asked Lizzie about it, and she claimed that it had been stained with paint. But the friend was, like, a little sketched (laughs) out. But she kept this information to herself for a really long time. And she eventually, like, got kind of guilty and told the cops that she had seen Lizzie burning a dress. And this was, like, the final piece of evidence that the grand jury needed to indict her. Because the grand jury was, like, really dragging their feet. Honestly, though, like, we, we already did, in case you didn't listen to the whining about herstory episode, there's one point where they just straight up burned some evidence because... Frankly, what were they going to do with it? So, we're at about that level of police investigation. I mean, yeah. So, Lizzie did at one point give the cops what she claimed were clothes she was wearing that day. And there was, like, a little bit of blood on the hem, which is reasonable for someone who was, like, handling the bodies and around the scene. But, like, not enough to have been, like, hatcheting people's (laughs) faces in. And that honestly was, like, a huge thing in her defense, which, like... Fair. But Lizzie was ultimately arrested for the crime on August 11th, and she ended up staying in the county jail for nine months, just like between the trial and everything. The prosecutors claimed that the dress that she was seen burning was actually covered in blood, and that's why she burned it. And also during this time, Lizzie kept changing her answers to the police. She incriminated herself a bunch by accident, and she didn't get an attorney until after the initial investigation was over, so there was, like, no one helping her out. Once again, this is why we don't talk to the police. The police had also found out that Lizzie had tried to buy a poison the day before. Oh my god! <laughs> Lizzie! <laughs> also, apparently poison something you just, like, buy at the pharmacy in these days. Yeah, how are they gonna kill those ants? <laughs> The cops did find the hatchet that was supposedly used in the murders in the Borden family basement. However, while fingerprinting technology existed and was pretty common in Europe at the time, the U.S. investigators were still skeptical of it and therefore refused to test for prints. (laughs) So, you know, that's fun. Is there anything more American? (laughs) And the police officer, I mentioned how the police officer interrogated her the day of the murder was an Irishman. And this apparently, like, rattled Lizzie so much that she was, like, not able to answer the questions. Because <laughs> she was, like, so not used to talking to people who she considered beneath her. Oh my god. And at this point, people of her own social class, like, the people who lived on the hill, were swearing up and down that she was innocent. They were saying that she was, like, wrongfully accused. They were all up in her business, like, being like, nah, Lizzie didn't do it. But she was taken to trial on purely circumstantial evidence, honestly, like, nothing about this was hard evidence, but I don't really know if you have hard evidence in a time before, like, DNA and fingerprints. Honestly, most evidence is circumstantial. Yeah, but this is, like, super circumstantial. But Lizzie was indicted on December 2nd, 1892, and this trial was a, like, worldwide sensation. It, like, officially started in June in New Bedford, and... You know, the Borden family was rich, they were white, they were Protestant, they were like the good folk, they came from good breeding, and this crime just rocked the entire country. 
her court was packed every single day. Like, all the newspapers were reporting about it. It was a big deal. This just in. White people can also commit crimes. Well, this also brought up a lot of ideas on gender and what women were capable of. And, like, a lot of people were saying, yeah. In the end, Lizzie did not take the stand in her own defense. And she never made a testimony that was submitted into evidence. However, there were a lot of people who did testify at her trial, including the neighbor who saw her burning the dress, uh, some family friends who talk about how she fought with her father and didn't like her stepmom. However, the family doctor testified that she was so shaken after the death that she couldn't have done it. And he also said that he had prescribed her a double dose of morphine so she could sleep after the tragedy. And tried to say that the side effects of that morphine could account for her confusion and, like, her question, her answers to things always, like, getting switched up and whatnot. And Emma, her sister, testified, claimed that the sisters liked and got along with their stepmom. Emma. Which is just, like, lying on the stand. (laughs) Like, I know, Emma, you really loved your sister, but come on. It's perjury. There was also a Harvard chemist who claimed that he found no blood on the axe and hatchet the police found in the basement. So that he was like saying that couldn't have been the murder weapon, which, you know, is something they should probably have tested for before they like submitted it into evidence. Yeah. And also they brought in the evidence that the clothes Lizzie turned in as the one she'd been wearing that day barely had a spot of blood on them. And so like this was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And also... Lizzie got the best lawyer that money could buy. She got a lawyer who was able to like take the circumstantial nature of the evidence and run away with it. He claimed that the poison she tried to buy was just her accidentally picking up the wrong bottle at the drugstore, which should not be that easy to buy poison. What? <laughs> and he also encouraged the jury to believe that what they were seeing was inconceivable. He reminded them she was a well-bred Victorian woman who could not have committed patricide. Are you saying his defense was racism and sexism? He, at one point, called Lizzie a Protestant nun because she was a 32-year-old spinster. A cat. A cat. He also reminded everyone about her participation in so many religious charities and how big of a part of the community she was. Uh... And the public rallied around Lizzie. Women's groups provoked an uproar about it. And this went national. The Women's Christian Temperance Union and the suffragists both kind of rallied behind her and protested that she would not be judged by a jury of her own peers because women, since they couldn't vote, couldn't be on juries. That is a fair point. Which I agree with. But also, like, suffragists, I really respect you. But is this really the horse you want to put in the race? (laughs) Probably just capitalizing on the media attention. Probably. But the local courthouse was tiny, and it was constantly packed, and a large portion of the people who were packing the courthouse every day were women who lived on the hill. So, like, the fancy women of town were rallying behind her. Lizzie, who had stayed single on purpose and had been generally a fairly strong, independent woman, as, like, much as you could be in that time came into court and gave off the appearance of a helpless maiden. Oh my god. She dressed in black because she was in mourning. She wore a tight corset and flowing clothes and brought a bouquet of flowers and a fan with her. She brought a bouquet of flowers? 
and a fan because, you know, sometimes she just got so overwhelmed and she didn't have her fainting To the trial where she's being tried for murder? <laughs> yeah. The papers started describing her as quiet, modest, and well-bred. Oh, and one paper, I needed to quote this for you, claimed that she lacked the Amazonian proportions necessary to commit such a crime. What? Okay, there's so much to unpack. But we're just going to go with the main thing I, th- I thought of, which is, weren't they murdered by being uh, hacked at in the back of the head? Yes. So, doesn't take an Amazon to do that. I don't know, it takes a little bit of muscle. It takes muscle, but like, doesn't need Amazonian proportions. Fair. On top of that, a lot of the jurors were practicing Protestants from her church with daughters who were about Lizzie's age. <sighs> just gets worse yeah and so on June 20th 1893 she was acquitted of the murders oh my god the jury made this decision incredibly quickly but then all the agreed to wait a half hour so that it would appear as a hasty decision oh my god I'm so mad this is a hundred year old crime and yet I'm furious <laughs> And no one else was ever charged with the crimes. So, technically, this is still an unsolved case. <sighs> well, that's unsatisfying. The circumstantial nature of the evidence in Lizzie's nice Christian girl persona made all the ma- male jurors think she was incapable of such heinous crimes and she got off scot-free. Except for, like, the nine months she spent in jail waiting for the trial. <sighs> and in the end, Lizzie inherited a nice chunk of change after her father's death. Wow, this is... this just gets worse. Two months later, Lizzie and Emma moved to a large Victorian house on the hill like they always wanted. But many people in the community shunned her since she had like gotten off and she no longer was like a stain on upper-class society. They didn't really want to associate with her anymore because they all kind of knew she was a murderer. Yeah. And she became like a main attraction of the Fall River like community. People stared her down whenever she was in public. They ostracized her. Neighborhood kids would play pranks on her. And she eventually withdrew to her home and didn't socialize much anymore. Alright, I guess she was punished. But, like, the way any rich white person is punished. House arrest. (laughs) But four years after the murders, she was arrested again in Providence for shoplifting. What? (laughs) But she paid the shop back and then it was, like, all good. She didn't get charged with anything. She, the whole, one of the reasons she did this was to get money. And she's going around shoplifting? And then she just paid them back. So she, like, had the money for it, clearly. Oh, my God. I know. But in 1904, sadly, Emma and Lizzie started fighting. <gasps> no! I know. In 1905, Emma left the house that they shared and moved into her own home. And reportedly, the sisters never saw each other again. Oh my god. Right? Which was, like, really sad, because Emma gave her whole life to Lizzie. Mm-hmm. Well, that was probably when Lizzie told her sister that she definitely killed her father. I don't know. I feel bad for Emma. Yeah, Emma deserved better. Emma did deserve better. However, both sisters died in 1927. Lizzie died on June 1st. And Emma died nine days later, even though they hadn't seen each other in, like, 20 years at this point. Which is, like, kind of crazy. Yeah, but, but that could be a coincidence. 
Yeah, but it's like one of those like cosmic coincidences, you know? Those are always fun. Like my empath skills. Ah, like how you cry whenever your niece cries. Yeah. And in a fun turn of events, both girls were buried next to their father. <laughs> one happy family. <laughs> and now we're going to go into the fun part. Theories on what happened. Finally. First, some speculate that Lizzie was being abused at home. There's not really much physical evidence for this, but statistically, there's a really strong correlation between incest and patricide. So, like, a lot of, especially female writers will bring this up. Well, that's super dark. Yes. (laughs) Also, some speculate this was caused by Lizzie's poor mental health. Apparently, a few days before the murder, she told a friend, I feel depressed as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw off and it comes over me at times, no matter what I am. That's also dark. Real dark. In a 1967 book on the murders called A Private Disgrace, the author theorizes that Lizzie suffered from epilepsy and committed the murders in a fugue state. However, I don't know how epilepsy and a fugue state connect. I don't usually associate those. However, I didn't look into it. A couple million people have epilepsy, and you don't hear many stories of, you know, murdering your parents with a hatchet. True, true, true. And then, now we're going to get into some more fun theories. So there was a nurse who attended to Lizzie later in her life, and she said that on her deathbed, Lizzie confessed that her boyfriend actually committed the murders and that she covered for him. And that her boyfriend did this because her father didn't approve of him. However, we have no identity for this boyfriend, and he was never mentioned anywhere else. Yeah, what? That's lame. But... A nurse claimed that Lizzie said that on her deathbed. Can't just introduce a new story this late in the game. (laughs) There is another theory that Lizzie and Bridget actually, so like Lizzie and the maid conspired to commit the murders together. Which honestly seems like the most realistic one to me. And this is either because they were having a romantic relationship. Oh, this just got interesting. (laughs) (laughs) That's my personal favorite theory is that Lizzie and Bridget killed them together because they were having a romantic relationship they wanted to run off into the sunset together. Okay, but, like, didn't you say that the maid was an Irish Catholic? Yes. Oh, that makes this even better. I know, right? (laughs) So, that's my headcanon. I approve it. People think that it's possible that they did work together to do that. And there's some actual evidence that Bridget knew what had happened before, like, it all went down. Because... After they found the first body, Bridget appeared to know something was wrong upstairs before Mrs. Borden's body was found, and she refused to go up to find Mrs. Borden when, like, the neighbor had asked her to. She was didn't want to do it by herself. And also, when a neighbor went to get a sheet to cover Mr. Borden's body before they had found Mrs. Borden, Bridget allegedly said, we'll need to. <laughs> so... I am going all in on the Lizzie and Bridget were having a gay relationship and decided to kill her parents. <laughs> I mean, I am absolutely here for this theory. But also, like, those those are also pretty easily explained by I don't want to walk around alone in a house where there's where someone was just murdered and oh god, that's a lot of blood. We might need two sheets. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? We aren't here for logic, Ellen. All right. 
Also, didn't you say the maid's name was Maggie earlier? So, her name was Bridget, but people called her Maggie. And I used both in my notes, because I'm not helpful. Okay. Good to know I didn't imagine that. I don't know why Maggie was a nickname for Bridget. I have listened to a lot of podcasts about this, and they all also complain about this. (laughs) So at least I'm not alone. Well... This is absolutely the correct theory. Lizzie and Maggie were in love, and that love inspired them to murder. Be gay, do Mm -hmm. crimes. Yes, exactly. However, other theories that have come along. In a 1992 book, author Arnold Brown suggested that Lizzie actually had an illegitimate and mentally defective brother who committed the crimes, and that Lizzie covered it up to conceal his existence. But where would the brother have... You'd have to have been an older brother. Yeah. Okay. Because the mom died right after. Well, no, if it's illegitimate, then it wouldn't have, it would have been like just her dad's Oh. Okay, yeah, that would work. You never know. That one seemed a little far-fetched, but I wrote it down. (laughs) What is up with these theories where there's just invisible men? Well, (laughs) this next one. So, the night before the murders, Lizzie's maternal uncle, so, like, her mom's, her, like, biological mom's brother, John B. Morris, was staying with them. However, everyone kind of said that he left, like, first thing in the morning, like, before even Andrew left for work that morning, so he was never really a suspect. However, he had been staying in the room where, like, the guest room where Mrs. Borden was found dead, and he had had some, like, financial disputes with his brother-in-law and also he gave the police an alibi for where he was at like the time of the murder but that alibi was actually later disproved so he could have just like hidden the house and then yeah and also he was a butcher and had easy access to cleavers and usually people always said that he always had a cleaver on him (laughs) and cleavers and hatchets i found out can do very similar damage (laughs) This family's so comically evil. <laughs> so yeah, that's my final theory is that um, Lizzie's uncle uncle actually did it. My favorite theory is that Lizzie and the maid are in love and did it together. Oh no, far and away. Absolutely, that's the correct one. Mm-hmm. And I only have one quote on the quote wall because all of her quotes were just like stupid things she had said the day of the murder. <laughs> <laughs> but this one was good. Because she said at one point, I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from another. I am telling you just as nearly as I know. If that's not a mood. Which is me on every (laughs) test, honestly. Me taking any test. And I personally have one big issue with this whole thing. How did she clean up all the blood so fast? Off of what? Off of herself. So she would have been, like, drenched in blood if she had committed these murders. I mean, like, the way they were committed, like, she would have been just Carrie in the, when she got covered in pig's blood, covered in blood. And so how? There was, like, less than an hour between when the bodies were found and when they were killed. And she wouldn't have had time. <laughs> Because she was wearing, like, Victorian-style clothes, which involved, like, a lot of corsets. You, she needed Maggie to, like, lace her up into her corset every morning. So she couldn't have been put, putting it on, taking her off by herself. 
I read a theory somewhere that she committed the murders naked and then just, like, plunged into a quick bath and got dressed. But that is, like, so out there, honestly. Like, I am here for that, but then she would have had wet hair. Yeah, exactly. So, like, how? (laughs) That is literally my only issue with this entire story is, like, if Lizzie did it, give me your beauty tips, hon, because, like, how? (laughs) Oh god, it might actually be the uncle. That's disappointing. Like, I am all here for Lizzie and Bridget having committed these murders together because they're in love. Except for the fact that, like, I mean, if Bridget was in on it, then it's a little bit more likely because she would have had someone to, like, lace her up into the clothes and, like, lace her out and all that. Honestly, Bridget has to be in on it if it was Lizzie because otherwise there's no way she could have gotten dressed in time. Maybe she, like, covered herself in a sheet like a ghost. And use that to keep herself from getting bloody. So, that is really my biggest complaint with this whole story, is I want to know how someone could get that much blood off of them that quickly. So yeah, that's the story of Lizzie Borden. (laughs) And really, if anyone can tell me how it is physically possible to get that much blood off of you that quickly, I want to know. (laughs) For research purposes, of course. Yes, yes. Hope you enjoyed your spooky season. This is our episode that's going to come out closest to Halloween, so, like, it's not going to get any spookier than this till next year. Well, I've made it my goal to create the worst segues possible to whatever insane thing I researched that week. So, you know what else is scary? What, on Government cheese. <laughs> You about to tell me about how government cheese was actually, like, them trying to boost the dairy industry? Yes, that's exactly what we're going over. Let's do it. Cool, I'm glad that this is another time where I just casually already know what's going on. <laughs> Why do you already know about government cheese? I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Alright. So, in the 1930s slash early 1940s, You know, there was the Great Depression, which was bad. Really, Ellen? (laughs) So, dairy farmer... Tell me more about how the Great Depression was bad. (laughs) Yeah, you could almost say it was pretty depressing. (laughs) Anyway, the dairy farmers were talking about how, man, it's really expensive to make dairy, and what if people don't buy it because they're broke? So, that's not good. So, the government instituted a subsidy program where basically if the price of milk dipped below the cost to make milk, the government would pay the difference. And I'm sure this will have no negative consequences. Of course not. Yes. But it did. Really? (laughs) There were consequences for their actions? I know. Don't you hate it? Later, in the 1970s, things got weird. So the economy was just doing all kinds of messed up things. Prices went up for some things, down for others. Gas was really expensive. But also, there was no milk. Yes. This... Where was all the milk? They, the people just didn't want to make it because it was so expensive to make and it wasn't selling for enough. So, in 1977, President Jimmy Carter had to do something. 
He said, <laughs> he said, I'm going to dump $2 billion into the dairy industry. And that immediately solved the lack of milk problem. But, Jimmy Carter, you're supposed to be the one who's, like, good for the environment. <laughs> dairy cows, fam. I don't think they knew that back then. So, immediately, the dairy farmers were producing so much milk that it they couldn't be sold, honestly. And the government had to buy so much milk because they had done the subsidy program and for just single-handedly propping up the dairy industry. And you can't keep a bunch of milk, Sam. It goes bad. I know. So they had to get creative. They started making butter. They started making dehydrated milk powder. And they started making cheese. Cheese. Now, milk powder, you can get rid of pretty quickly. You can put that on a plane, donate it overseas. It's pretty transportable. Cheese? Cheese is pretty heavy. Did they like, fill caves in Wisconsin with it? Actually, the caves were in Missouri, but you're correct. <laughs> in Springfield, Missouri, there are giant caves that are home to the largest stockpile of the U.S.'s surplus of cheese. Now we'll get into how much cheese we have. But it's a pretty disturbingly high number. So we're going to let that marinate. Can I guess? What do you think it is? 5,000 tons of cheese. Okay, a ton is 2,000 pounds. We're going to have to do some math here. What unit do you have it in? I have it in just billions of pounds. Billions? Okay, I way <laughs> underestimated then. Because 5,000 times 2,000 would be 10 with... Six extra zeros, it'd be like 10 million. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Imagine 12 times that. 120 billion? Wait, no, no. 1.2 billion pounds of cheese. <laughs> yeah, too Damn. I'm not sure the math I did in my head was right either, <laughs> so don't worry. 1.2 billion pounds of cheese is a ton of cheese. Like, it's more, like, it's clearly more than, but it's like a ton of cheese. <laughs> Like, it's an inconceivable quantity in my head. It's over 5,000 tons. <laughs> like, I was talking to a friend the other day, and I was saying how I can't conceive of a ton. Like, it just it's a quantity that doesn't work in my brain. And they were like, you know, a semi is like two tons. And I was like, still, I can't conceive of a ton. Like, I don't care that you can tell me, like, multiple things that I have everyday access to that are over a ton, but I can't conceive of a ton. <laughs> I thought you were just going to say, well, there it is. Now I can't conceive of a semi. No, it's kind of the same way I feel about, like, I knew it was spooky season, but I didn't know it was October. Are you okay? <laughs> no, I'm in grad school. All right. So, by the 80s, the U.S. had had all this cheese and was storing it in caves and other locations all across the country. Uh, I think in 35 states, which is more than 35. half. That's a lot of states, fam. <laughs> so, there, this is beginning to become a problem. To the point <laughs> where, in 1981, a USDA official said, quote, Probably the cheapest and most practical thing to do would be to dump it into the ocean. 
That's so sad. So that was plan B for what to do with the cheese. I don't like that. I know. However, in a very rare instance of Ronald Reagan being helpful, (laughs) he then signed a farm bill that allowed them to give away 30 million pounds of this cheese, which is a lot of cheese, but barely puts a dent in how much they have. Yeah. It's like not even 10% of the cheese. Yeah. This gets distributed almost everywhere. They're giving it to disaster relief. They're giving it to nursing homes. It becomes a staple of the welfare, which resulted in essentially becoming the 80s equivalent of a meme. If you were on welfare, you liked the taste of government cheese. That was like code. It's also in a surprising amount of rap songs, including like modern day rap songs. Well, yeah, because like the people who are rapping now probably grew up with it. The people who are rapping now are like our age. Okay, people who are rapping like five years ago. (laughs) Okay, so cheese everywhere. It also tasted meh. It apparently tasted like a combination between cheddar and American cheese. So just terribly processed. And it also, to quote an article I read, it also smacked of humiliation or gratitude for the people who couldn't afford not to eat it. Which I thought was fantastic. Yeah, that sounds... that's unfortunate. So... Cheese. Everywhere. And we then get into how the American government has been manipulating the dairy industry for so, so long. So the entire, like, Got Milk campaign is part of the Dairy Management Corporation, which is a federally funded nonprofit whose only goal is to get Americans to eat more dairy. And it is incredibly effective. It also has a lot of quote-unquote scientific evidence that dairy is really, really good for you. Even though, like, more and more science is coming out that it's not. It's just fine. It's no superfood. However, so many public institutions have contracts with the government for all this cheese and dairy. There's prisons. There's schools. Is it still going to today? So it's, like, less prevalent, and I think the trademark government cheese is all gone. So you gotta say, because, like, cheese can last a long time, but it's been a long time. America has a lot of cheese, but I think they, they stopped making government cheese. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so then we got into the part of the research that infuriated me. White Americans are, well, no, white people in general are more likely to not be lactose intolerant. They are more likely to be able to digest milk. However, people of color are less likely to be able to ingest milk. Wait, white people can ingest milk? Oh, some people, some of them can. Maybe not you. I mean, I grew up in a Jewish community, and Jews cannot digest milk, so I just assumed no one could no, do it. No, no. There, there are plenty of people who can digest milk, Sam. Like, I know there are, but I just assumed white people weren't on that list, because, like, my community was white, but couldn't digest milk. Well, as we learned about, you know, that inter-white racism, 
They I don't think they counted us Jews. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that's how they did it. <laughs> Drink this milk. Ah, so that's terrible. So, people of color are much more likely to be lactose intolerant. And guess who is also more likely to be of lower income and rely on products such as government cheese? Let me guess, people of color. Exactly. So, these people are being forced to rely on something that they can't digest... And when we combine with the fact that obesity is a running epidemic in the United States and that the, uh, the lower income people are much more likely to be obese, feeding them five pounds of cheese probably doesn't help things. You sure? I, I'm pretty sure, yeah. In the end, Big Dairy is the bad guy. There's a big everything, and it's horrible. Now, you may be worried, Sam. You're like, but what about now? Things aren't doing too great now. Is there going to be more government cheese? Well, the answer, probably not. So, there's a couple of reasons. One, most dairy is produced by very few farms that produce most of the dairy, you know, like, those mega farms. Yeah. And they are less likely to need these subsidized. Also, people don't want to eat processed cheese as much as they did in the 80s. And also, there's like an effort to be more nuanced about our welfare programs and how maybe, just maybe, throwing five pounds of cheese at people doesn't solve systemic issues. So. That about covers it. However, nice. the U.S. still has over a billion pounds of cheese. <laughs> you know, be on the lookout for that, and hopefully we don't throw it in the ocean. Oh, God, that'd be so sad. I know. Okay, Ellen, what did you learn today? Oh, uh, I got way too invested in the Lizzie Borden murder. It's a fun one, right? It is. I learned that her sister deserved none of this. <laughs> Also, that apparently racism was a perfectly valid defense, which is... Racism and sexism. There's both. With our powers combined. <laughs> and, as always, the true power is in gay love <laughs> and murder. You know what? That's the correct moral of the story. Mm -hmm. Sam, did you learn anything today, or did you just already know everything about government cheese? So I knew most of that, but the, like, 1.2 billion is still rattling around my brain. I also, I put in a calculator because I needed to know. 30 million pounds of cheese is only 2.5% of all the cheese they had. Oh my god. Why did they have so much cheese? Like, 1.2 billion is still not a comprehensible quantity. This isn't even, like, a just American thing. In the 1970s, the European Union had the problem of Butter Mountain, where they just had too much butter. <laughs> I did not know that. That makes me feel better, at least, <laughs> that it wasn't only us. Well, if you'd like to find us on the interwebs, <laughs> you can find us at Chaos Podcast on Instagram, at underscore Chaos Podcast on Twitter. You can email us at chaospodcast21 at gmail.com, and... 
if you give us a five star iTunes review or Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or wherever you listen that takes reviews, send us a screenshot of that review and I will send you a sticker. These stickers are great. You want one, you should get one. You get one by leaving us a review. <laughs> imagine the coolest sticker you've ever seen. And then imagine having it for the low, low cost of a review. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the chaos. Safe travels. Bye-bye. Bye.